Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for the truth, for the pouring out of your spirit. We ask that you will join us here today, enlighten our minds, give us discernment to see where you're leading in this world at this time, Uh, empower us to be lights to help bring people out of the darkness into your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, We're going to be doing lesson seven in the quarterly Isaiah, which is defeat of the Assyrians. And we're examining the story of the defeat of the Assyrians when they attacked Judah during the time of Hezekiah. Now, I want you to imagine you live in Judah, uh, live in Jerusalem, uh, part of Judah at that time, and an army of 185,000 Assyrians are pressing down on the city, and they've just defeated every other major power in the region. There's no other major powers left, and they're surrounding your city. What do you think and how do you feel? Scared, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, Scripture tells us, 1 Corinthians 10, 6, it says that these things, talk, talking about the Old Testament history, it says these things occurred as examples to keep us from, uh, from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These are examples to us. Are there lessons in what happened there for us today? Do we live in times today where we are surrounded by enemies? Are all of the enemies that surround us military enemies? that use physical force, or could we be surrounded by spiritual enemies? In fact, in the Old Testament, it's not only the the record of real historic people who did real historic stuff. Those, Those, as I just read, are there as object lessons to teach a larger reality on the battle between Christ and Satan. The In this battle... Jerusalem represents God's people. Assyrians represent the kingdoms of the world. The Assyrians use a variety of tactics to attack Judah. We're going to examine those from Isaiah and see how those same tactics are being used spiritually today. Did Judah win this battle with their own might and power? We will not win this spiritual battle with their own might and power either. We want to learn the lesson. How do we win? So what are the devil's weapons or powers? The Bible talks uh, about the we fight against uh, principalities and powers. Do you know the devil has certain powers? The Bible identifies six of them, at least six of them, but but six of them. We're going to explore those six of them, how the devil used all six against Judah, and all six are being used today right now. We're going to go into that. So you guys know the first power. The one that everybody knows, the most common power that the devil uses, he's the father of lies. lies. And remember, lies believed. When we believe a lie, it breaks the circle of love and trust. If you believe your spouse is cheating on you, but your spouse is not cheating on you, but you believe your spouse is cheating on you, what happens? Love and trust is broken. You're now afraid, afraid that they're going to hurt you, bring you a disease uh, or whatever. And so you have to watch out for self and protect yourself because they're, they're not trustworthy because you believe a lie about them. Lies believe break the circle of love and trust, incite fear, which drives towards selfishness. This is very important to recognize, this dynamic. That's where we arrive in this world, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, arrive filled with fear. As soon as Adam and sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. This fear that drives us to protect self is the playground or the landscape of the enemy. He inflames it. And all of his powers, ones we're going to go through, you're going to see how all of his powers inflame fear and drive towards more self-protection. 
That's what his powers do. Because love and fear are inversely proportional. It's like a seesaw. As love goes up, it drives out fear. As fear goes up, what happens to love? Okay? So keep that in mind. That's what happens. So Satan's uh, powers will incite fear to drive you to protect self more so that love is crushed out of your heart and the image of the enemy is written in. This is the goal. All right. So first power is the power of lies. And in Monday's lesson, we will come back into some other days, but in Monday's lesson, the title of Monday's lesson is Propaganda. Propaganda. That's the title for the lesson. What is propaganda? I looked it up in the dictionary. Propaganda is information, ideas, or rumors deliberately spread widely to either help or harm a person, group, movement, institution. It's the deliberate spreading of such information for that outcome or goal. So propaganda is information with an agenda to influence people or groups in specific ways. To get people to join a side or to not join a side. Propaganda is information to influence, to action people. Now, is propaganda honest and truthful information? It is not. Because propaganda is shaped information. It's spin. It's crafted. It's purposely highlights some facts or data points while it purposely suppresses and diminishes or minimizes other facts or data points to get people to draw a conclusion that is not inherent in the facts themselves. That's what propaganda is. Further, propaganda agents are not wanting you to know the whole truth and nothing but the truth. They want you to know only those data points or facts that support the propaganda message. In Hezekiah's day, we will see in chapter 36, we're going to start in verse 4, uh, four and go through 7. I want you, we're going to read. Because the king of Assyria sent an agent to Jerusalem to propagandize them before he sends his army. And this is what it says. This is this messenger from the king of Assyria speaking outside the walls of Jerusalem to the people of Jerusalem. On what are you basing your confidence of yours? You say you have strategy uh, and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces man's hand, a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, uh, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? You see the propaganda. We have a strong army. Egypt is weak. You can't rely on Egypt. You can't depend on God. Why? Because Hezekiah removed the altars from the high places. Do you see the fact and do you see the spin? Did Hezekiah remove altars from high places? Yes, yes he did. That's fact. He did that. And he required or had left only one altar at the temple of Jerusalem. Now they take that fact and they spin it to say, see, you can't depend on God because having removed the high places, the altars and all the high places, he's offended God. Therefore, God won't protect you. And, and, and so you need to be afraid of us because Hezekiah's being unfaithful to God. Took the fact, removing the high places, make propaganda to incite fear. 
God can't protect you because Hezekiah has betrayed by tearing down these altars. Consider this description from Ellen White of what someone did with her writings. This is in Review and Herald, August 22, 1893. I have been made very sad in reading the pamphlet that has been issued by Brother Stanton and by those associated with him in the work he has been doing. Without my consent, they have made selections from the testimonies and have inserted them in the pamphlet they have published to make it appear that my writings sustain and improve the position they advocate. In doing this, they have not done that which is just... Which, in doing this, they have done that which is not justice or righteousness. Through taking unwarranted liberties, they have presented to the people a theory that is of a character to deceive and destroy. In times past, many others have done the same thing and have made it appear that the testimony sustained positions that were untenable and false. What were they doing? Propagandizing. This is propaganda. They took her words, put them in, out of context, making it appear she says or supports something she doesn't say or support. Do we see any examples of this going on in society today? Somebody's words? Oh, it's happened to me on multiple occasions. It happens to me all the time. But I wasn't talking about me. Do you see it in society? People's words are taken. And it's not just one political party or one group that does it. I will essentially every major political race, when you see the ads go up on TV, it's propaganda. They will take their words, they will make them appear they're saying or doing something that the person themselves may not actually believe or support at all. Sometimes it might be, but many times it's not. You rarely see in a political campaign people giving the other person the honest benefit of the doubt. Let's put their words in the best light possible. This is what he really meant. This He's really, really trying to help, or she's really, really trying to help. How often do you see that from, from political opponents? If you haven't read my blog this week, I encourage you to read it. The person who emailed me, uh, it's a good example of somebody who has accepted a lot of propaganda, and I expose it. I don't use the word propaganda. I use the word, um, there are facts, and then there are interpretations of facts. People can take facts and then they interpret them in certain ways to uh, draw conclusions or meaning that are not inherent in the facts themselves without actually corroborating whether, in fact, those conclusions are correct. You see this all the time. Here's an example uh, today of our current society being propagandized around hydroxychloroquine and whether it's a safe or dangerous medication. First, the facts. Hydroxychloroquine has been around for more than 65 years, approved by the FDA in 1955. The World Health Organization has it on a list of essential medications. If you have just this limited medications in a, in a impoverished part of the world, uh, and you can only have this n- limited number of meds, we're the ones we have to have. Hydroxychloroquine is one of them. You have to have it. Billions of doses have been taken over the 65 years around the world. It is safe and regularly given to babies, the elderly, pregnant women, 
as well as people of just middle age around the world. It is over-the-counter medicine like Tylenol here in America in many countries of the world, including France. You can go into France and just buy it over-the-counter. In many countries of the world, essentially every person in the country takes it once a week. They just take it once a week, once a week, to prevent malaria in those zones. Those are the facts. Long track record of safety. Here's the propaganda. In 2020, the, the U.S. propaganda machine decided that it needed to make you believe that this is a dangerous medication, and if you take it, it could kill you. Two articles were published in two of the world's most respected medical journals, The Lancet and The New England Journal of Medicine, both claiming that hydroxychloroquine is dangerous and may kill you. The Lancet study claimed to have over 90,000 people from multiple countries around the world enrolled. Uh, and, and this study was done from the time of COVID-19. Some conscientious doctor... Oh, and then after this, this, this studies came out, the media machine in America went on full blitz, and you were hit over and over again with article and, and news report of the dangers of hydroxychloroquine to convince you that it's dangerous and that anyone, including the president who would recommend it, is foolish. But some conscientious doctors had some questions. How is it you can get a study of 90,000 people in multiple, in multiple countries uh, up, run, uh, done, and results out in just a couple of months. That, for, for anybody who in medicine knows, that, that's a, it, it's, a, it's a mountain it's almost impossible to do. And so they looked into the studies, and guess what? They're all, they, were, they were fraudulent. It was all made up. It was false. The studies never happened. There were no enrolled patients. It was completely fabricated. And therefore, both the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine retracted the studies. If you were to go on to the computer and search engine and type in Lancet, hydroxychloroquine study, you will find a big announcement. Retracted. Article retracted. Did you hear the media machine in America inform you that this was a fraud, these were fraudulent studies, and you've been deceived, and this is not a, a dangerous medication, and you will not be killed if you take it. It's extremely safe. Did you hear the media machine go on full bore? No, they actually buried the story. It was purposeful. And they have kept it hidden. That's propaganda. Magnifying something that's even fraudulent. And then when it's fraudulent, they don't, they don't come out and, and spend time educating you about all the people who, who have been harmed because they have been afraid to take this medication. Why would they do it? Why would the media machine propagandize us this way? Well, look at the outcomes. Look at the impact. Look at the consequence. What has happened over the past year in America, we had more or less fear. Fear has gone up, hasn't it? Are we seeing more unity or more division? Are we seeing more freedom, individual liberties, or liberties eroded? Are we seeing less governmental power and control or more governmental powers and intrusions and control? Whose system is this? Whose kingdom is this? 
who operates and runs on fear and control and coercion. Just remember, there are facts and there are interpretations of the facts. I could give you a long... What I just did with, with... I could do with so many of the headlines that have come out. I won't, because as soon as I do, I stayed with the medicine. Facts are very clear. It's black and white. You can check it. It's hard for people to say I'm being political, since I stayed with the medicine, and it's medical. But I could do the same thing with a lot of stuff in politics. But I won't, because as soon as I do, somebody's going to allege I'm being political. So I just give you this exercise. If you want to practice this, just go and pick five stories in the headlines and then put it on a piece of paper and go down the story and say what is actually factual and what is actually spin interpretation, uh, drawing a conclusion, but I don't have the facts that that could be the right conclusion. And just do that exercise. It will help you practice discernment. Satan's first weapon is lies. But Satan has five powers. One of them is the power, excuse me, six. Satan has six powers, uh, at least. But, but those, these six. The second power of Satan is, the Bible calls it mammon, or money, is one of Satan's power. But it's not merely currency. I want you to understand what it really is. It is human economics. Human economics are part of Satan's kingdom. What are human economics? And just the Satan's kingdom, we're going to come to one of his other power, powers in a moment, is imposed rules or imposed laws made up that are arbitrary. So human economics are made up arbitrary. What is the core reality foundational fact on all human economic systems? The core? It's the law of buying and selling. Nothing is free in life. Haven't you heard that? Nothing is free in life. We must pay for it in some fashion. It might be, uh, and we must pay for it, buy and sell, and we must own it. Ownership. It's mine. We must purchase it with money or with labor or with trade, but there is nothing free. And the more we own, the more secure we are, the safer we feel. This is Satan's kingdom. This is Satan's power to get you to believe that you have security by ownership, and nothing is free. Is this how God's economy works? Or does God's economy work by actual, literal, real, free giving? For God so loved the world that he sold, sold his only son to those who had the right payment. That we purchase that from God. No, he gave his only begotten son. The design law of love, the principle of giving, how everything God has built runs on the law of love, the law of giving. This is God's economy. Free giving without expectation of payment. Mammon is the system of human economics that's built on, that there is nothing free. Everything is bought and sold, and we are the owners. We earn our way. Prices are also arbitrary. Money is an arbitrary, made-up construct. It has an assigned value. It's not inherent. That's why currencies are constantly fluctuating. It's not constant. It's assigned. Property ownership, arbitrary, that you can own a piece of land. It was uh, unthinkable to the Native Americans that, that you could own a piece of land. How can you own a piece of land? But we, that makes perfect sense to us because we've accepted Satan's economy. You can own stuff. And... But look how arbitrary it is. You might own the land, but you don't have the mineral rights on your land. 
You don't have the right to drill or to frack. Now, that's not yours. Arbitrary. Or only people with royal blood can own land. We are the royalty, the elite. The serfs, they, we, we will give them um, you know, some feudal uh, right to farm the land, but they can't own the land. You see how it's all made up? It's not reality. It's all, it's all contrived. But people buy into it. They accept the lie. They begin operating in the system. They become part of it. They're in Babylon. Are we in Babylon? God's economy is just the opposite. Everything gives freely. You give away carbon dioxide to the plants. The plants give back oxygen to you. And there's no arbitrariness. You give exactly away what your body consumes. Through metabolism. It's the design laws of health and physiology that determine how much oxygen you consume and how much carbon dioxide you give away. This idea of buying and selling, Satan's economy, not only has arbitrary laws infected our theology, and we believe God makes up rules and punishes like humans do, but the buying and selling ideas infected our theology, that we have no free gift of salvation. Grace isn't free. It has to be purchased, but we can't purchase it. We can only, only the infinite, perfect, sinless blood of Jesus is sufficient to purchase it. And so Jesus came to pay the price so that his blood could be offered by us to the Father to buy our salvation from the Father. If you're a Protestant, that's how you think. If you're Catholic, then you actually have the blood of Jesus with your good works that buys your salvation from the Father. You do both. That's all a lie. The language, the proper language of buying and selling the metaphors in Scripture that talk about that, it's not economic buying or paying prices. It's design law reality. If your son or daughter were dying of renal failure and you donated a kidney to save them, could we say you paid a high price to save your child? You paid a a dear price to save Yes, you did. But it's not an economic price. It is the price that the reality of the design laws of health required to be met in order to restore them to health. So yes, God paid a high price when he gave us his son as the remedy to the condition to free us from our terminal state or heal us from our terminal state. There was a price they paid. It was not economic. It was the price that love pays to fix what's broken in the one you love. But interestingly enough, Marxism identifies the evil of ownership as evil. They recognize and identify ownership of property is the evil in the world. And they propose a solution. And the Marxism solution is that no one but the state can own. And the state in Marxism ultimately becomes supreme. It's the supreme power that owns everything. And therefore, there will be no haves and have-nots because you don't own anything. Your house is a gift from the state. Your car is a gift from the state. Your job is a gift from the state. Your food is a gift from the state. The state is supreme, and here's the corruption. I want you to see it. You become owned by the state. You only have value in a Marxist system to the degree you benefit the state. 
If you do not benefit the state, you can be eliminated. And that's why in all Marxist systems, they end up killing millions of their people. It's even a grosser perversion of capitalism. Capitalism is a perversion of God's economy, but Marxism is even a grosser perversion. And, and as all, all powerful lies, some lies are very, very weak lies. They don't have much power. But the truly powerful lies will always have an embedded truth that's perverted. And in this one, the embedded truth is that ownership is an arbitrary evil of selfishness that you can take and own something. It's not part of God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, everything is the Lord's and we're stewards. It is fear and selfishness that causes people to want more money, more stuff to make themselves feel secure. It is fear that causes people to want to own or possess property because in so doing it makes them feel secure. It is fear that causes jealousy when somebody has more stuff than we have, and it is fear that drives us to take actions to get more stuff for ourselves, or fear that drives us to actions to support a new regime that will take stuff from other people so they won't have more than me. The Assyrians used economics and Satan's threat of poverty on the people in, ver in chapter 36, verse 16. This is the same spokesperson saying, this is what the king of Assyria says, make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern. It'll all be good. You'll be well fed. You'll have your own property, your own, your own vineyards. Satan exploits us, understand his powers. He exploits us with fear, fear of poverty, fear of homelessness. Fear leads us to embrace his methods to either avoid poverty and remedy, and remedy the solution through societal laws, taking, taxing, giving, rather than loving, and compassionate giving, or through Marxism. Consider this Bible text. This is Proverbs 11. 24 through 25. Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. God's economy, folks. There's a law. This is the law of love, the law of beneficence, the law of giving. Do you understand this is foolishness to the world? No, the more you give, the less you have. The more you take, the more you hoard, the more you got. Doesn't make sense to the world. Consider this quote from Councils and Stewardship, page 13. He who gives to the needy blesses others and is blessed himself in still greater degree. Why, if you bless others, are you blessed yourself? Is it magic? Is it God divinely acting to use miraculous power from heaven to impose a blessing? Is that how it happens? Well, if I do this, I get a check mark and I get a, a little gold star because I did my memory verse for my, for my uh, Sabbath school class. And, and so because of that, and then the teacher gives me a candy and so I get blessed. God will hand something out to me if I, if I, do, if I, do, if I do good. Is that how it works? If you're level two, then yes. Or is it simply how reality works? Design law. 
You actually develop loving brain circuits and loving character traits when you actually love other people. And when you develop those traits, guess what happens in your brain? You calm your fear circuits. And when you calm your fear circuits, you have less inflammatory cascades. And when you have less inflammatory cascades, you have less physical health problems. You also have less conflict with people. Your own character, you have more peace, you have more joy, you have more contentment, you have less fear. There's, have any of you ever been in a position in life where you were afraid and then you came to a position in life where you were not afraid? Is there a blessing in living in peace? Yes. Let's go on to the next paragraph. That man might not lose the blessed results of benevolence, our Redeemer formed a, the plan of enlisting him as his co-worker. By a chain of circumstances which would call forth his charities, he bestows upon man the best means of cultivating benevolence and keeps him habitually giving to help the poor and to advance his cause. By its necessities, a ruined world is drawing forth from us talents of means or and of influence to present to men and women the truth of which they are in perishing need. And as we heed these calls by labor and by acts of benevolence, we are assimilated to the image of God for who our sakes became poor. In bestowing, we bless others and thus accumulate true riches. There's a law. This is the law of love. This is a law of exertion. This is the law of sowing and reaping. Just as if you commit sin against someone, you cannot avoid the damage to your own soul, your own conscience, your own character. You can't avoid it. Whether you're caught or not caught, it's irrelevant. When you sin against somebody, you injure yourself. So too, when you love others, when you practice God's message, you can't avoid uh, growing in godliness. Did you hear the design laws? Did you hear how we practice and apply them to our lives? We grow in godliness. Restoration of God's law into our characters. Do you understand God's goal for human beings? God's goal is the restoration of his perfect design for life, for, for truth, for love, for the principles of liberty, restored into your character, that you have peace with him, and you have love for him and love for This is his goal for you. What is Satan's goal for you? He has a goal for you too. Destruction, that's right, destruction to incite fear in you, to incite selfishness in you, and destroy the image of God in us to cause division, to cause hostility, and prevent your restoration to godliness. That's Satan's goal for you. To override his character. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If God enlists human beings as his agents to minister to others, to give, to share what he has given to us, whether it's food, whether it's clothing, whether it's money, whether it's truth, whether it's health, living practice, whatever God has given you, and, and he enlists you to share it with others, and not only be a blessing to others, but in that process, it's part of his therapeutic plan to help you grow those traits of godly character, to help you flourish, to help you advance, to help heal your heart. If that's part of his plan, then what would Satan want to do? Would he want you participating in doing any of that? He would want to interfere with this economy. He would want to replace this economy of altruistic, beneficent, social justice practice from loving people to loving people. He would want to replace that. 
and have you seek to help others through his kingdom of laws and enforcements. Taking the goal of helping the poor, and instead of pursuing it in God's ways, we instead pursue it through the kingdoms of the earth and apply Satan's methods to it. We pass laws to tax people who have no love in their heart and have no desire to give, or maybe people who would give, but now that they're paying their taxes, why should they? I've paid my taxes. And we use those taxes to help people in need. What is the consequence? Temporal temporal needs are being met. But do those who are being taxed experience the growth and godliness of character by practicing the principles of love and beneficence by paying their taxes? Do those who receive the government check experience the love of godly people being ministered to them? And do they experience those being cared and valued as a person when they receive the monthly check deposited into their account? Are relationships formed between those in need and those who care about them when we tax and give those tax monies away? Or are we interfering with God's plan to bring healing? Consider all the people that Jesus healed or fed during his ministry here on earth. If instead of those people meeting Jesus personally, touching his robe, being touched by him, if instead these people received a government insurance card and went to a clinic and got a prescription and went home and took it for their health condition, would they have had the same life experience and outcome? Notice the contrast in the two systems. One gives freely, the other takes and seeks to control, and the results on people are different. The outcomes in hearts and minds are different. We cannot achieve God's goal as Christians through Satan's kingdoms and earthly governments. Does this mean, I have to say it, because somebody will take what I've said and they will create propaganda if I don't clarify Does that mean governments should not be benevolent and should not have social programs to help people in need like poverty programs, uh, single mother WIC programs, uh, uh, the unemployment programs to get people employed again, et cetera, et cetera. Should they not have social? Should they not be benevolent and not have social? Is that what I'm saying? Did I say that? I never said that. That is a completely different question. That's a political question. My point is simply that as Christians and as God's people, you cannot substitute the mission of the church with state programs. Regardless of how good intended and well intended those programs will be, once they're applied through Satan's mechanisms, they're perverted and they're corrupted and they will not have the outcome of winning souls. We are to live God's law in our lives and come out of Babylon. Next paragraph in this same quotation, Counselor Stewardship, page 14. It is the glory of the gospel that is founded upon the principle of restoring in the fallen race the divine image by a constant manifestation of benevolence. This work began in the heavenly courts. There God gave to human beings an unmistakable evidence of his love for God's soul of the world that he gave his only begotten son. The spirit of liberality is the spirit of heaven. Christ's self-sacrificing love is revealed upon the cross that man might be saved. He gave all that he had and then gave himself. The cross of Christ appeals to the benevolence of every follower of the blessed Savior. Pause. But does it 
appeal to benevolence if we represent it as Jesus paying a legal price, the Father putting the sins upon him, the Father killing him in our place, and then Jesus offering that blood payment to God so he won't kill us. Do you still see the equal benevolence going on there? It perverts it. Continue on with the quote. The principle, the principle there illustrated is to give, give. This carried out in actual benevolence and good works is the true fruit of the Christian life. The principle of worldlings is to get, get. And thus they expect to secure happiness. But carried out in all its bearings, the fruit is misery and death. Get, get, take, take. You're violating the law upon which God built life, health, and happiness. Try it in your marriage, folks. No, and really don't, because you'll ruin your marriage. If in your marriage you approach your spouse with the, with the attitude of, you're here to give me whatever I want, so I'm going to take from you everything that you can give me. I'm not here to give to you. I'm here to get from you. There are marriages that operate like this. And they usually end up in misery and brokenness. But when both partners love and give and give, they both are constantly receiving because they're both giving. And those relationships and the, uh, grow stronger and the individuals grow healthier. Do you see this get-get in the world today? And do you see the misery it's bringing? The light of the gospel shining from the cross of Christ rebukes selfishness and encourages encourages liberality and benevolence. It should not be a lamented fact that there are increasing calls to give. God in his providence is calling his people out from their limited sphere of action to enter upon greater enterprises. Unlimited effort is demanded at this time when moral darkness is covering the world. Do we see the moral darkness of the world system getting deeper and darker? Many of God's people are in danger of being ensnared by worldliness and covetousness. And I would say worldliness is, we're going to get one of his other powers here in a moment. You'll see it. Is this pursuing a righteous or just cause through worldly methods? It's worldliness. They should understand that it is his mercy that multiplies the demands for their means. Objects that call benevolence into action must be placed before them or they cannot pattern after the character of the great exemplar. Exemplar. So, so she's saying there's more need of it out there before you because it's more opportunity for you to actually give so that you not only can bless others, but you can grow in godliness of character. Satan's father of lies, he's also uh, the father of the world's economy, buying and selling and owning. Satan is also the prince of this world. So worldly powers which use imperial law, coercion, and physical might. These are another one of Satan's powers. Assyria used power against Judah, marching their army and threatening them coercively. This is the beast of Revelation, Babylon, and all the little harlots who embrace the imperial law methodology and will ultimately coerce through buying and selling and imperial powers to punish those. It's the theologies of penal substitution theology in which there's an imposed law and God must punish lawbreakers and Jesus took our punishment and pays our price. This is all part of the corruption. It is fear that drives people to make rules. Understand, Satan's playground, fear and selfishness in the heart. 
So fear drives people to make rules and use power and force to make others comply to their rules because in so doing, if you're the one in power who makes the rules and enforces the rules, you feel secure. You feel safe. It makes you feel safe to have the rules that are your rules and make people obey your rules. That's why people do it. They're trying to feel safe and secure. Whether it's a government doing it or whether it's just the rules of the hood. Understand, in gangs, there are rules. And those rules are enforced. And it makes the members feel safe. Satan exploits us with fear, the fear of pain, the fear of torture, the fear of punishment, the fear of imprisonment, the fear of legal trouble. And the righteous are tricked into embracing the methods of Satan and seeking justice through more law and more infliction of punishment upon those who don't obey our code. Satan is also what his name means, the accuser. And one of his powers is the power of accusation or allegation, both internal, the accusations we hear inside our own mind against ourselves, and external, the the accusations that come against us or others. Assyria used the power against Judah, accusing Hezekiah of being unfaithful to God by tearing down the altar. It's accusation. Accusing God of not having the power to help. Accusation. Satan uses accusation against us to get us to embrace his methods, and we do that when we make accusation against others. It is fear and insecurity in regard to our own sinfulness or weaknesses or infirmities that we are aware of and that we can't and that we don't face truthfully under the umbrella of God's grace to bring maturity, healing, growth. If we don't face them and we still struggle with them, what happens is the way we deal with that is we tend to project it out and accuse others. We find fault in others. This is what Jesus dealt with when he talked about getting the uh, plank out of your own eye before you try to get the little splinter out of somebody else's eye. Satan exploits, exploits us through fear of humiliation, shame, rejection, ruined reputation, fear of not being loved. And so we fear, we fear accusation. But don't, when men say all manner of evil against you falsely for my namesake, Right? It's going to happen. We're going to be accused of everything. Does the fear of death fit in there? Oh, uh, you're, you're ahead of me. Okay, yep. So we have, we have two more fears. The last one is the fear of death. We'll get to there. So, so two more powers. One, he's also the tempter who divides. He's the divider. He divides through tempting to sin, and whenever you sin, you fracture relationships, and you cause division. So he's the divider. Through temptation to sin, he divides. This is one of his powers. Hezekiah was fighting various divisions in his society. False god concepts, tearing down the altars to the false gods. Fear divides us economically, and we get some get richer, and some uh, by exploiting and taking. Fear divides us socially into classes or political classes or religious groups. Fear exploits, exploits, notice the word exploits, cultural and racial divisions as points of di- to disdain, where love sees cultural and racial divisions as elements that enrich and to be celebrated. Satan exploits us with fear of rejection, broken relationships, abandonment, isolation, loneliness. He divides us. And then the last power is Satan has the power of death. And thus Satan is the destroyer. 
He incites fear. And this is uh, ultimately Assyria brought all of these weapons. You see, every one of these powers are brought against Judah, brought against Jerusalem. Ultimately, we're coming to kill you if you don't surrender. This was the ultimate threat. And Satan exploits us with the fear of death, both temporal and eternal. Fear of loss of our health. Fear of uh, death of a loved one. Fear of our own temporal death. Fear of eternal death. Fear of burning in hell. Do you see the object lesson of Assyrian and Judah? And do you see how that history, real historic events, has a very powerful lesson to teach us about what we're fighting with today? So what lessons do we learn from victory? Well, if you go to Sunday's lesson, the last paragraph um, talks about how uh, they, they did not need to be afraid because God was going to be there to help them. Once they did all in their power to prepare, they all, they, uh, Hezekiah led them to spiritual surrender to God. So what are the lessons for us in preparing to battle with these powers against us today? Remember Satan's powers, lies, which result in fear and selfishness, human economics, love of money and the need to own, worldly powers of law, imperialism, and coercive force, accusations, temptation, division, and fear of death. These are his powers. And the Bible says that Jesus in Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them at the cross. Do you see that at the cross, Jesus triumphs over all of these powers? In Romans 8, 37 to 39, Paul writes, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. First point in victory is recognizing uh, that all of Satan's powers exploit and magnify fear. All of his powers exploit and magnify fear. And what is it that casts out fear? Perfect love casts out fear. And what did Paul say? That nothing and no powers can separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus. The first point to victory is to experience the love of God in your heart. And then experiencing that you are loved, you are cherished, you begin to love not just God, but you do. You begin to love others. And this frees you from being manipulated by fear. First step. But specifically, lies, his first power, at the cross, did Jesus reveal truth? Expose Satan as a liar and fraud, and thus the truth destroys the lies, and he disarms him. Yes, we see that ultimate truth about God in God's life. Do we see human economics being overturned by God so loved the world that he gave? The first shall be last, and last shall be first. The more you give, the more you receive. In other words, the whole teachings of Christ and what he revealed is that the human economics don't work. It's the economics of love and beneficence that work. And so we surrender in the world today. Anything that the world says, well, this is the title to your car. This is the title to your property. The world says it's yours. In your heart, what do you recognize? 
Everything I have is a blessing from God, and I'm his steward. And as long as I can use this for God's glory, praise God for that. If the day comes where the Lord says, it's time for you to flee Jerusalem, don't even go back for your coat. Do I need to go pack all my, my stuff because it's mine, because my heart is attached to it? Or do I say, that's the Lord's, it's not mine, and if it's time for me to turn that, to let the Lord have that into somebody else's hands, that's okay. I'm going to tell you, I, I have to work on this. I'm not, I, I, I hear it, I'm working on it, I'm getting there, I'm letting go, but I've been conditioned and infected by this system too that I feel such attachment to so many things that I've owned or possessed. It's very difficult. I pray about that, that my heart will not be attached to any of it. It's the Lord's, I'm a steward. The worldly powers, did, say, did, did Christ defeat the worldly powers of human law and coercive control? What did he say to Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight. We're not going to fight. We that's the world's methods. Our weapons are not like that. We don't, we don't use those methods. Those powers have no power over your heart. Don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, but can't destroy the soul. The only way your soul is destroyed is by embracing, letting fear control, so that you embrace the methods of the enemy to protect yourself. Christ defeats those powers. Accusations. We do not, we do not accuse others. You, even when, even when, when, when Michael was, was uh, going to resurrect Moses, did he accuse the devil? Get thee behind me, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Just rebuke. Be silent. Speak to the hand. Not listening. You got nothing to say here. There's no accusation because when you have truth on your side and you're a revealer of truth, the truth itself exposes and diagnoses. The accusers are those who have no truth and they got to label somebody as something. Temptation and division. 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man and God is faithful and not allowed you to be tempted more than you're able, but with each temptation provide a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. Rejecting lies, rejecting fear, rejecting selfishness, applying God's principles. We don't follow the temptation that is driven by fear. We reject the world's divisions. We see every human being as a child of God. It doesn't matter what their race is. It doesn't matter what their culture is. It doesn't matter what church they belong to. What nation they belong to. Every human being is descended from Adam and Eve. And we see every human being with the same terminal condition, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. And every human being needing the same remedy of Jesus Christ. And we seek to bring every human being that remedy. We don't buy into the world's divisions. Death and destruction. Hebrews 2.14, since the children... And 15, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, and that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in, the sla in slavery by their fear of death. We don't fear. We surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. My life is in your hands, Lord. My temporal life, my eternal life, it's in your hands, Lord. I trust you with my life. I don't fear. Our faith requires, this is uh, Councils and Health 51, our faith requires 
us to elevate the standard of reform and take advanced steps. The condition of our acceptance with God is practical separation from the world. The Lord calls upon his people, come out from among them and be separate. The world may despise you because you do not meet their standard. Come out of Babylon. Stop embracing the false law constructs, the pursuit of justice and righteousness through the human systems, the false economies of the world. Stop embracing and trying to achieve God's goals by using Satan's powers. Tuesday's lesson, Isaiah 36, Hezekiah hears, uh, you will hear, um, if you read all Isaiah 36, you'll hear how the representative uh, propagandized. And then Hezekiah goes in before the Lord and uh, sackcloth and ashes uh, into the temple. And the Lord sends a message uh, and he sends some messengers out to Isaiah. And Isaiah comes back uh, with a message. And the message from Isaiah uh, is, uh, tell your master, this is what the Lord says, uh, don't be afraid um, because uh, he's gonna, the king of Assyria is going to hear a rumor, he's going to turn away, and I will cut him down. Because he blasphemes. He blasphemes. Yes, Wendell. I think it's important to realize that he said that he would be two years before this was going to happen. We're going to eat grain that we have collected this year, wild grain, wild grain next year. It's going to be the third year they're going to actually plan to reap. You know, sometimes God's messages are not instant. In fact, I don't know any of them that are really instant. Even when Mary got the message she was going to be the mother of Jesus, uh, it was still nine months down the road. <laughs> so that's a good point, being patient and wait for the, uh, wait for the outworking. So the Assyrian king blasphemes, uh, blasphemes the Lord. What does it mean to blaspheme? What does that look like today to blaspheme? How about, where is God? There is no God. Or God is the supreme judicial magistrate who inflicts the eternal punishment. Justice requires we get the right laws. What is the blaspheme today? Well, here's a, consider Revelation 13, 5 through 10. And he was given a mouth to speak great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. What is God's name? It's ultimately, in the Bible, name means character. And what's God's core character? Love. So what does blasphemy his name mean? To lie or misrepresent his character. How would this power misrepresent God's character to be something other than love? How does it do it? By taking the name of God, Christian... And representing God to function like Satan. And how does he get people to do that? By believing that God makes up laws like all the kingdoms of the world do and enforces those with punishment. That's how Satan operates. And that, if you pr promote that, that penal legal substitution theology, you are blaspheming God. You're misrepresenting his name and character. Verse 7. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. What kind of war? 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we don't wage wars, the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension. That sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Satan wars to misrepresent God. He blasphemes. We war by, rep by destroying everything that misrepresents God. And if you put together Daniel chapter 8 and 9, 
you'll discover that uh, seven, eight, nine, you'll discover that this power was winning the war until the Ancient of Days stood up and gave judgment to the saints, imparted judgment to the saints. Judgment, discernment, ability to recognize truth from falsehood. This is not judicial. It is a capacity for us to realize we've been lied to, see the truth, reject the lies, and come back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. We worship the designer and creator, recognize his laws are design protocols for life. We reject the imperial dictator of the dark ages. That's what this means. Because the hour of his judgment has come. The hour where we finally see God in the right light and judge him to be completely trustworthy. Continuing on. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Authority, other versions say power. Because the Greek is authority or power. Power was given him. How? How did this... Blaspheming power get power over all the world. Every nation, tribe, because all the world accepts imperial law as the way to righteousness. We just have to get the right laws. We have to get the right politicians. We have to get the right judges. We have to get the right enforcement. We have to get the right police force. We have to, if we can just administer imperial law the right way, we will have justice. And all the world is intoxicated on the wine of the beast. Continuing on, verse 8, And all who dwell upon the earth will worship him whose name has, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb from the foundation of the earth. Worship by adoring, believing, embracing, and practicing the methods of imperialism and coercion. Verse 9, And if anyone, verse 9 and 10, If anyone has an ear to hear, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity, and he who kills but with a sword must be killed with the sword. What's it mean? Those who hold others captive will remain captive to fear and selfishness and not have the freedom of Jesus in their heart. Those who use coercive power of the state over others will remain in unremedied sin and ultimately die when the sword of truth is unveiled fully from their unremedied condition. And then I want to close with Thursday's lesson. This is very, very important. Um, in, in the third paragraph of Thursday's lesson, it talks about how Ahaz would not ask for a sign and how Hezekiah got a sign, and he got a sign of reversing the sundial by 10 degrees. Reversing the sundial 10 degrees was a sign to, to Hezekiah that God was going to deliver. Sur- Judah surrounded by enemies. They've had the propaganda. They've had the lies. They've had the economic pressure. Now they have the threat of death coming. And God gives a sign. What's the purpose of the sign? There's a purpose in giving Hezekiah the sign. Its purpose is to give evidence of God's existence, turning the dial back. There must be a real power up there somewhere. It's not imaginary. Evidence of God's existence. God's ability over the laws of nature. God's faithfulness. God's concern. God's promise. God's active participation in resolving this crisis. In other words, all of these things in giving the sign were designed to enhance and strengthen Hezekiah's faith. God's going to take care of this. Is that not the purpose of the sign? These stories are real historical stories given for us as examples. We've examined how we're being surrounded by Satan's powers. And as we go to God like Hezekiah, humbly, 
realizing our inability to defeat the enemy and the worldly powers in our own strength. Has God, I'm going to tell you, God has given us a sign. Have you seen it? Just like he gave Hezekiah a sign, he's given us a sign. Do you recognize it? I'll read it to you. Ezekiel, it's a sign that he will deliver us from the powers and restore his law in our hearts and minds and take us to eternal life. Ezekiel 10, 12. And I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between us so that they would know that I, the Lord, made them holy. What is the Sabbath here? A sign of what? What's it a sign of? What's the purpose of the sign? Why is it given? It is a sign that God will make you, that God will win the victory for you. That God will heal your heart. That God will take away your fear. That God will write his law in your heart and mind. It's a sign. That he will deliver us from fear and restore us to righteousness. Deliver us from fear and selfishness. Restore us to righteousness. Do you understand better Jesus' words in Matthew 2, excuse me, Mark 2, 27? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Recognize this weekly sign as evidence of God exists and is real. He governs reality, including time. He is creator and recreator, meaning healer. His laws are design laws. He is faithful. He keeps his promise. He's active in healing He making and making us holy. Understand that the weekly Sabbath is evidence of all this because... There is no reason for the seven-day weekly cycle except creation. Every other measurement of time that we have are astronomical. Years marked by the earth rotating around the sun, 24-hour days, the earth rotating on its axis. The months are marked by the moon orbit in relation to the earth. The seasons are marked by the earth's tilt as it goes around the the sun. But the seven-day weekly cycle, it exists because God created the world There's no naturalistic, godless explanation for it. And every society in the history of the world has a seven-day weekly cycle. It's evidence. It's a sign. And what does the Sabbath day itself signify in this weekly cycle? This weekly cycle, every seven days comes the sign. Every seven days you pass through it. What's it signify? It is a sign that God is creator And what type of law does creation operate upon? Design laws that are supreme law being love. That truth, God revealed truth all week long, giving evidence in history, how reality works, historical. And then God rested, again, giving history of how he operates. He presents truth in love, creates time for free thinking. The Sabbath is a sign of God's governance, how he runs. It's not declarative. It's evidence-based revelation that you are to weigh and understand and choose. Do I want to live in a kingdom in which the creator creates life to operate in perfect harmony and love, the principles of giving, he reveals truth, and he actually gives real freedom to think? The Sabbath is a sign of all of these things. And thus, it calls us to surrender our economics to him. Don't do your work on Sabbath. Don't try to get ahead. Don't try to make money. Rest in me. I'll provide for you. 
to exercise those abilities he's given you to trust him. So your faith may grow and your confidence may grow. Do you see the weekly Sabbath as a sign? And evidence he's given you to be confident as the powers attack that he has overcome the world? Or do you see it as an obligation, a rule that you must keep in order to be holy? And if you see it as a rule that you'll be punished if you don't keep, whose system are you in? Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all that you have provided for us, for your beauty of character, for, for the way that your kingdom gives and gives and gives, and how you reveal truth and love and leave us free, and the evidences and the sign that you've given us, this weekly sign in time. Help us understand and comprehend it through your design law, and help us be to come out of the system of Babylon, the system of imperialism, and to be freed from the powers of this world that we can trust you at this time in history and give a message that will help bring other people out as well, that they can experience your presence, the cleansing of their spirit temple, and become bright lights in a dark world. We pray in your holy name. Amen.